Is God just? Earlier this week we received an email from the diocese from some missionaries who are living in India. I'll read you an excerpt from their email. We've never seen anything like this. We knew that Orissa was the most resistant and hostile state in India as far as the gospel is concerned and we brushed off the continuous threats and harassment we faced as we went about God's work. But none of our staff imagined that they would see this kind of carnage and it seems to be totally under the radar of the Western media. Let me explain. A militant Hindu priest and four of his assistants were zealously going around the villages of Orissa and reconverting people to Hinduism. They were gunned down by unknown assailants in central Orissa last weekend. Immediately, the Christians were blamed. The cry rose up, kill the Christians. And so the horror began. In the past four days, we have been first-hand witnesses to hundreds of churches being blown up or burned and many, many dozens of Christian tribals have been slaughtered for no other reason than that they bear the name of Christ. In Tahiti, just after the police came to offer protection, a group of 70 bloodthirsty militants came to kill our staff and destroy our home. They were not allowed to get in, but they did a lot of damage to our dream centre by throwing rocks and bricks and smashing our gate. They have promised to come back and finish the job. Our kids and staff are locked inside and have stayed that way with doors and windows locked for the past three days. It has been a time of desperately calling on the Lord in prayer. All our dream centres are under lockdown with kids and staff huddled inside and police outside. The fanatics are circling outside waiting for the chance to kill. Others were not so fortunate. In a nearby Catholic orphanage, the mob allowed the kids to leave and locked up a priest and a computer teacher in the house and then burned them to death. Many believers have been killed and hacked into pieces and just left on the road, even women and children. More than 5,000 Christian families have had their homes burned or destroyed. They fled into the jungles and are living in great fear, waiting for the authorities to bring about peace. But so far, no peace is foreseen. Is God just? In Iraq last month, up to 40 Christians were shot dead and up to 10,000, that's all of Neutral Bay, were forced to flee their homes. Is God just? A month ago, Zhang Jian, the pastor of, uh, the, the son of a Chinese pastor, was attacked and beaten uh, with, uh, by 15 officers for 25 minutes outside his family home. His family was then evicted from their house and their furniture thrown onto the street. Is God just? It's heavy stuff. It's not easy for me to say and it's not easy for you to hear. It's hard for us because it's a beautiful day today. Outside people are buying nice things in the markets and in a little while we'll kind of walk outside and we'll have a cup of tea and we'll talk about what we did during the week. But our brothers and sisters around the world follow God. They have committed their lives to him. They are living a life of obedience to him and as a result... They have been beaten and despised and insulted and mutilated and forced out of their homes. And we follow the same God. So we cannot help but ask ourselves the question, is God just? Well, let's make the question more personal. 
Do we serve a just God? Today we start a three-week series on looking at the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. It's a church of young Christians. Paul started this church himself and they haven't been doing this Christian thing for very long. And Paul's writing to them to show them how to live in the hope that Jesus will return. It's the big thing because for these people, just as it is for the people in India and in Iraq and in China and all over the world right now, it's not easy at all to be a Christian. And as they are suffering for following Christ, they must have been asking, is God just? And so Paul presents, if you like, three courtroom exhibits for the justice of God. And the first thing that he wants to show them is that God's justice is proved by the perseverance of his people. Paul wants to show them that their response as they suffer for Jesus is the very evidence of God's justice. Take a look with me at verse 4. Paul writes, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You see, in the midst of their suffering, they haven't gone into hibernation, they haven't locked themselves into a holy bunker, whinging and complaining about their situation or doubting whether God exists or whether he really cares for them. In fact, Paul is gushing with thanks. He boasts of their response in the midst of this suffering. They're not just surviving, they're thriving. He says that they are growing more and more in their love. Their faith is increasing in the midst of this suffering. This is the first piece of evidence that Paul presents for God's justice. How does this work? What's Paul really saying here? If the Christians were despised and insulted and abused and they simply caved in and gave up on their faith, where would the evidence be then for God's justice? How could God be just if his people were suffering for following him and he doesn't even sustain them? The persecutors would have succeeded. But God hasn't forgotten them. God has sustained them. Paul gives thanks to God because God is continuing to help them to stay faithful to him in the midst of these terrible circumstances. Just like Jesus, though the world hates them or the world uh, abuses them, they are continuing to do good. What an encouragement that in the midst of such persecution, God is the one who continues to help us be faithful to him. The second piece of evidence may be more uncomfortable for us to hear. You may have felt uncomfortable uh, when Michael read it before. But it's important. The afflictors will be paid back and they'll be punished. You read with me from verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. 
how did you feel as you listened to these words of payback and punishment? I submit I feel awkward uh, saying them, feel uncomfortable. I don't know how you feel. I think it's particularly hard. I can really only speak for myself here because this kind of suffering for being a Christian is so far from my experience. Um, And I dare say it's far from the experience of most of us here today. Uh, Certainly we have all suffered. I know we have suffered. I don't want to discount in any way the suffering that we have and have experienced in our life. It hurts and it's very real. But the suffering that Paul is talking about here is about suffering for the sake of being Christian, suffering because we follow Jesus. I think if we haven't been afflicted for our faith, uh, we probably feel very little desire for those afflictors to be paid back, for justice to be done. However, for our brothers and sisters in India and in Iraq and in China and all over the world across history, these are very comforting words of God's justice. The evil that has been done to the followers of Jesus has not gone unnoticed. God is not blind. God is not impotent. God will act on the day that Jesus returns. And it will be a terrible day. Those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel will be paid back trouble. The tables will be turned, the fortunes will be reversed and the afflicted will become the afflicted. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. It's not a mistake what God is doing here. The word punishment that is used is not speaking of a reckless, kind of spiteful vindictiveness, just flying off the handle. What Paul is speaking of here is a firm and right administration of justice. Justice must be done and God will do it. Those who thought that God was silent or uncaring or unable to act will see his justice in full force. God is just. The third and final piece of evidence that God gives for God's, uh, that Paul gives for God's justice may be slightly easier for us to digest In this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul really has pressed the fast-forward button on the movie. He's taken them to the end. He wants to show them what it will look like. And he gives the Thessalonians and us as readers of this letter a bit of a glimpse of what's to come, what we can expect in the future. And he assures the Thessalonians and us as well that the victims of suffering will be relieved. In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul wanted to encourage them by saying, Jesus will return. But he said to them, we don't know when. He said, Jesus will return uh, like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected, a surprise. But he will return. Look at verse 7 with me. All these things, God's justice will be revealed when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The Lord Jesus will be revealed, unveiled before the world in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Can you imagine that? It is a picture of something that has never been seen before and will never be seen again. It is a picture of power, of wonder, of awe, of fear. And we, those of us who believed and trusted in the gospel of Jesus, 
will marvel at him. Wow. And it will be time of relief. The Lord Jesus will be finally be revealed as the victorious, all-powerful, all-conquering King and he will gather all of his people to himself and they will share in his glory. The suffering of this world will be a distant memory. God is just. Several years ago, I went to the uh, Easter Convention at Katoomba. I've been doing this all but one year since I was born and uh, heard a pastor from South Africa, Frank Retief, speak of his experiences at his mixed-race congregation. He shared that being living in South Africa wasn't particularly difficult, wasn't particularly easy, rather, um, uh, even more so when you're a Christian and even more so in a mixed-race church. No, but Frank Retief, maybe 10, 12 years ago, some gunmen came into the back of the church and gunned down much of his congregation. He shared how hard it was being a Christian. They were under constant threat of attack. You couldn't go out, uh, particularly at night. And his house had an intricate lockdown system so they could secure different parts of the house before they went to bed. So if people broke into one part of the house, they couldn't get to where the kids were sleeping or where the parents were sleeping. And he was asked at this conference when he was interviewed, where would you rather live, Frank? South Africa or Sydney? Now, I've got a... Serious, I thought this is a pretty stupid question. Uh, It's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Of course, it's Sydney. South Africa, Frank replied. He said, in Sydney, it's too easy to think that you've made it to heaven already. It's true, isn't it? For most of us, for most of us, living in Sydney today, we struggle to feel the relief that many Christians will feel on the day that Jesus is revealed. But we haven't made it to heaven yet. Jesus hasn't returned. But the confidence that we have in his justice and his return will radically transform the way that we live in this world now as we wait here in the departure lounge. Last year, my sister and I went on a trip around the world. We discovered it was cheaper to buy a ticket to go around the world than it was just to go to America and back. So we headed off and we spent a lot of time on planes. I think about 12 or 15 flights we took in about five weeks and we spent a lot of time just sitting around in uh, departure lounges. Now, as you know, in departure lounges, it's just about killing time. All you're doing is just waiting for your flight to be called so you can head off to wherever you're going next. So we'd sleep or listen to our iPod or browse the shops or get something to eat and just continue an endless cycle for four or five hours all the way to the flight. Now, in one sense, being a Christian is like living in a departure lounge. We are waiting to be called to our final destination. But while we're here, our aim isn't just to kill time and sleep and eat and browse the shops. Paul's concern for the followers of Jesus is that they be filled with doing good. Take a look at verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfil every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. What does it mean to be counted worthy? What does Paul mean when he says this? He's not talking about being made worthy. We can't. Nothing of us that is worthy. Uh, Jesus has done everything that is required for us to be seen by God as holy and blameless. Paul said counted worthy, deemed worthy, shown to be worthy. 
Let me give you a terribly inadequate but I hope nonetheless helpful illustration. Uh, a couple of months ago it was my birthday and my girlfriend Rachel wanted to take me out for dinner. This was a gift. Uh, it wasn't something I had deserved but I graciously accepted the uh, invitation and so I thought, what am I going to wear? Uh, it wasn't as if we were going to turn up on the night and she was going to take a look at what I was wearing and then decide whether or not I was kind of worthy to uh, kind of come out for dinner with her. Um, it was already decided, I think. The, uh, the restaurant had been booked and we were heading off to dinner. But I wanted to wear clothes that kind of reflected the value I placed on the invitation to dress in a way that would have me counted as worthy. Now, only Rachel can tell you if I hit the target with what I wore, but I like to think I did a pretty good job. Now, obviously that's a very inadequate illustration, but it's similar for us as Christians. We should be seeking to live in a way that would have us counted as being worthy. Now, it wasn't particularly easy for me to know how to dress because I didn't know where we were going for dinner. But for us, there are no surprises about what's involved in living worthily because God's word is our guide for living in response to his graciousness. And so Paul prays for the Thessalonians that God would help them to live in a way that would please God, that God, by his power, would fulfil every good purpose and every act prompted by their faith. So the question is, what good purposes do you have? What things will you be prompted to do because of your faith? We are to do good and to trust God. This week I was really struck, one thing that really struck me as I was preparing this and is the inevitability of suffering as a result of being a Christian. Over and over again, as we kind of skimmed through various parts of the Bible, it was just so clear that as Christians we are to expect suffering. Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. And others, Peter, Jesus himself, talk about the reality of suffering as a follower of Jesus. So I then had to ask myself the awkward question, if suffering is to be expected, why am I not suffering as a result of following Christ? I'm not suggesting we need to go out and find suffering, that's stupid, but the fact that we live in Australia means we can worship with ease, we can meet here without any worry that some gunmen are going to run in the back and gun us down. Uh, sharing the gospel doesn't mean that we will go to prison. And these are good things. God has blessed us by uh, living in this great country. But it seems that as we live out these good purposes and seek to be faithful, the world around us that does not know God will not always respond enthusiastically. Let me give you a couple of examples of how we might do this. A couple of years ago, I remember watching the footy show uh, and I remember seeing Jason Stevens mocked and ridiculed by the host of the show uh, for his commitment to uh, not having sex before marriage. Uh, they just laughed at him as he told them that this was his plan. They couldn't believe it. If we resolve to do good and trust God's plans for sex, our commitment to saving sex for marriage may result in us being mocked. Similarly, if we defend marriage as a union between a man and a woman, and that is not God's plan for a child to have two dads or two mums, if we trust God's plan for our sexuality, we might be hailed down as 
old-fashioned or bigoted or worse. If we refuse to stay back week after week, late on a Tuesday or Wednesday night because we've got Connect Group on, uh, we may face persecution from our employer and colleagues. We may be the subject of ridicule or we might not get the promotion we're after because we're just not that committed to the workplace. We're having lunch with friends and the debate turns to religion and everyone just says, look, it doesn't really matter what you believe. The main thing is that you believe something. And we defend Jesus and his death on the cross and speak up and say that he is the only way to know God. We may be persecuted, but we are acting out of faith. As the economy continues to flag or nosedive, depending on who you're talking to, there will be a great temptation for us to cut back on our generosity, financial generosity, perhaps the church or perhaps the, or the charities or organisations we might support. The challenge again is to do good and to act out of faith, trusting that God will continue to provide everything we need. Tim Costello, the Chief Executive of World Vision, had a great quote during the week. He said, as, as we look inwards and we feel really worried about our own super, remember that when we don't eat out as much, the poor in a financial crisis don't eat. Now let's think on an even larger scale. The Australian government gives a pathetic amount in foreign aid each year. And much of that is tied up in ways that directly benefit Australia. If we stand up for the poor and challenge our government on its generosity to those in need and urge it to honour its commitment that it made to the Millennium Development Goals, we may face persecution. Encouraging our government to be generous in a time of recession won't be well received. But it's a way of doing good and of showing God's justice in this suffering world. These are only a couple of examples. The question that I will ask myself and the question that I will ask you is how will we live to do good and have faith? Finally, let's not forget to pray. Paul is all about prayer. Throughout this whole passage in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul is thanking God and asking God to work in their lives. He knows that it's only by God's power they can be counted worthy. It's only by God's power they can do good. It's only by God's power that they can persevere amongst amongst suffering and persecution. And God will help them and he will help us also. But let's not just pray for ourselves as the writer to the Hebrews encourages us. Let's remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. There is a great reminder in this passage today, as Scott prayed earlier for those elsewhere around the world, that there are many who are suffering for the name of Christ. As a church, we assist an organisation called the Voice of the Martyrs, which supports Christians and their families who uh, are suffering for following Jesus. And as Scott mentioned in the prayer, uh, we particularly support uh, some men and their families in Vietnam who are currently in prison for their faith. On the uh, slide above you can see a link to the website and also you might be interested in subscribing to their newsletter to get updates and prayer points for these people. Friends, we've been told what happens at the end of the movie. The future is secure and God is just. Jesus will return 
The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will be glorified in his holy people. He will be marvelled at among all who have believed. He will be glorified in us. We will be glorified in him. May God count us worthy as we wait for our Lord Jesus to return. Let's pray.